God kept bringing one verse from this passage to my mind. Verse 13, Peter wrote, according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. According to God's promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which God's righteousness dwells. In other words, the world we are in is not going to be like this forever. All of creation is going to be renewed uh, one day, is what Peter is saying. And as I was thinking about this, uh, my mind went to the song Somewhere Over the Rainbow, uh, which you may have heard. Uh, you probably have heard. It's a beautiful song. Uh, it's about 80 years, 70 years old. The lyrics uh, kind of tug at the heartstrings of every human being who's ever heard the song. Somewhere over the rainbow, way up high, there's a land that I heard of once in a lullaby. Somewhere over the rainbow, skies are blue, and the dreams that you dare to dream really do come true. Right? Trebles melt like lemon drops high above the chimney tops. You, you probably know the song. A guy named Israel, uh, Israel K., a Hawaiian guy, did a beautiful version of this a couple of years ago, kind of blended it together with the song, It's a Wonderful World. Uh, the original version of Over the Rainbow was sung for the movie The Wizard of Oz by a, an actress named Judy Garland, who played Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. Uh, and years after she sung that song in The Wizard of Oz, Judy Garland wrote a letter uh, to the author of Over the Rainbow, a guy named Harold Arlen, uh, to tell him that after all these years, Over the Rainbow has become part of my life. It's so symbolic of everyone's dreams and wishes that I'm sure that's why some people get tears in their eyes when they hear it. I've sung it thousands of times, and it's still the song that's closest to my heart. And it struck me that while, while Over the Rainbow is not a Christian song uh, by any means, uh, it's a song that I think hits a deep chord in the human heart that's, that's, that's more than simply a nice thought, uh, more than simply a maybe that this, you know, maybe some lucky people will get to live in a place like that that's described Right? It's not just a dream, uh, more than just a dream that you know, keeps you alive, but you're, you'll never really attain. I think that Judy Garland was spot on when she said that uh, uh, this is so symbolic of everyone's dreams and which, wishes because the gospel, the story that the Bible tells that goes really from the, the beginning of creation all the way until all eternity, it tells the story of God's love for his people and his pursuit of his people. The gospel uh, is a story that points to a place very similar to one that is sung about in the song that is over the rainbow. Uh, and the gospel story explains that the reason we all have a desire for this land where there is no wrong, where there is no trouble, is because this land actually did exist once. And this is a land that will exist one day in the future when God brings us about. And God is excited to usher us back into that land for his people to dwell with him in that land for all eternity where, where there really are no troubles. The Bible says that we were all created in God's image. We are created in the image of God with eternity written into, into our hearts. In other words, the reason we all dream of this land is because God has placed precisely this kind of land in each of our hearts and minds for us to dream about and look forward to. And so when, Paul, or when Peter says in verse 13, according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, he's not hitting on just a Christian desire, but I think a universal human desire. And the Bible tells the story about how this new heaven and new earth will be reached. The thing is, in order for this hope to become a reality, right, in order for a world to exist where only righteousness exists, all of the troubles of the world, all that is bad, wrong, evil, wicked, must be dealt with. And evil doesn't just spontaneously 
go away. Uh, it's similar to the human body with infections. If an infection goes undealt with, uh, it doesn't just simply go away. If anything, it gets worse. Uh, and although it would be nice uh, if our troubles, if our sins, simply melted away like lemon drops, right? the evil in the world is not just the equivalent of a simple infection that you give your body a couple of days and some water to get over. The reason troubles exist in the world is because of sin, which is an infection that the human body, the, the immune system that we're working with, can't handle. As human beings, we will never be able to create the, personal, the, the perfect personal disciplines. We will never be able to create the perfect civil and economic systems, the perfect environment in which there are no troubles. No matter how hard we try, creating a perfect world in which righteousness, goodness, and freedom and troubles exist alone uh, are outside of our ability. And so the purging of evil from the world is something we can't do as human beings from within this world because... It is from within us in this world that sin came in the first place. As a result, someone or something outside of us must intervene and deal with this problem for us. God knows this. In fact, centuries before Jesus arrived, God sent prophets who began to describe this coming day. They called it the day of the Lord. It was a coming day of judgment that would be the day that not just humans and human hearts, but all of creation would be cleansed, would be purified so that only righteousness would remain. God would pour out his wrath on all wickedness and all sin, and it would be a fearful day for those who are wicked and sinful. A couple of examples. Isaiah 2, verse 12 said, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Jeremiah 30, verse 23 says, Behold, the storm of the Lord, wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest, it will burst upon the head of the wicked. Malachi 4, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when the arrogant and evildoers will be reduced to stubble. It shall set them ablaze, neither root nor branch shall remain. This coming day of the Lord is going to be a fearful and wonderful day. In the New Testament, when Jesus arrives uh, to offer forgiveness and salvation, uh, the salvation that he gives is for a particular purpose. It is from present sin, and it is also ultimately for this future coming day of God's judgment, of God's wrath that will be poured out. Uh, And the only way through this coming judgment of God is to hide under the shade that Jesus Christ alone can provide. Matthew 3, verse 12, Jesus himself says, God's winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Romans 1, 18 Paul says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the New Testament picks up this theme from these prophets from the Old Testament. The apostles, Christ, the Lord himself, as Peter says in verse two of chapter three, all of these predictions and promises and commands that have been given are looking towards this coming day of judgment that's coming for sin. So when Peter says in verse two that I'm stirring you up by way of reminder, he's reminding his people of these predictions, this day when all of the purging that is necessary to make this world beautiful and perfect, to make this world free from trouble and anything, all of this purging will be done. God will consume all the earth with fire, taking everything that is not worthy of his presence with it, and sin will not even be remembered. And the way that Peter reminds them, we see that there's, there are huge cosmic implications for sin. Uh, verse 10, Peter says, The heavens will pass away with a roar, The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You see, sin is no small thing. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they didn't just make some 
philosophical mistake that their kids and their kids' kids have wrestled with for all eternity. Right? When Adam and Eve sinned, all of creation broke. Genesis 3 says it this way. To Adam, God said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. When God spoke his curse over an Adam and Eve after they sinned in the garden, this curse fell not only on them, but on the whole earth. In fact, on the whole universe, God had entrusted all of his creation to humanity. And for the same reason that, his ki- that their kids would struggle with sin, that their kids would, be, w- would receive the penalty for and would uh, suffer because of sin, so too all of creation was affected. As a result, despite how beautiful the world and the skies are, there's coming a day when they will pass away because they are cursed, just as humanity was cursed because of sin. The heavens will pass away with a roar, The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. What a sight this is going to be. There's a hymn that's written, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. Uh, John, the apostle John, saw a vision of this day in Revelation 6, 14. Describes it as the sky vanishing like a scroll that's being rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. Michael 1, 4 says, the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire like waters poured down a a steep place. Peter's goal in this chapter is to remind his churches what they already know. Judgment is coming for wickedness in order for God to bring about his promise of this new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. God must do this. And since they know that this is coming, he says in verse 11, what sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for this day? Verse 14, be diligent to be found with them without Uh, to be found by him without blemish or spot. So since God's wrath is coming for all ungodliness and all sin and all wickedness, we can flee from that sin and wickedness and the salvation offered in Christ, and why would we not do so? Why would we not turn from our wicked ways? Why would we not turn from sin and turn towards the Lord? As appealing as sin might be, it's not worth forsaking eternity with God. Which moves us to point two. That was the necessity of judgment. Point two is uh, these scoffers who begin to scoff at God's coming judgment. The reason Peter is reminding his, his readers so earnestly about this coming day of the Lord is evident right from the beginning of the chapter. Let me read, starting partway through verse one. Peter says this. He says, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with their scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Let's stop there. Peter points his readers to this group that he calls scoffers who will come in the last days. To scoff uh, means to mock or to insult someone, essentially to, to dishonor, to challenge the honor of a person. And here, Peter is talking about a group of people who are scoffing at, they are dishonoring God himself And they're probably an extension, like I said earlier, of the false teachers from chapter 2. And as a side note, uh, Peter says that these false teachers, or these scoffers will arise in the last days. These last days that Peter is talking about uh, are referred throughout the New Testament as the days that begin with Jesus' resurrection and end with Jesus' return. Uh, So in other words, uh, the last days include the time that Peter wrote this letter and also include where we are today. 
To quote Thomas Schreiner, uh, one theologian, he said, New Testament writers emphasize that the last days had arrived in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, there's no suggestion that Peter's prophecy recorded here that scoffers will come in the last days. There's no suggestion that his prophecy of scoffers was still unfulfilled. Peter believed it was fulfilled in the false teachers that had arrived in the churches he addressed. And so these last days are not some future days that are coming, not some kind of apocalyptic scene. These scoffers are arising and they have been arising for the past 2,000 years within the church. And so Peter's warning his churches about these scoffers that will arise. And what is it that they're scoffing about in particular? Verse 4, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? This is what the scoffers are saying. They look at the, at the church and say, where is this promise of Jesus coming? Essentially saying, if Jesus said he would come back, then where is he? All right? Here's what they were doing. They were following their own sinful desires, as Peter said in verse 3. Uh, and they were looking at Christians who were looking forward to Jesus' imminent return and forsaking their sinful desires, pursuing God, pursuing lives of holiness, and saying, they were looking at these Christians and saying, hey, loosen up a little bit. There's no point in doing that. Christ isn't coming back. So relax. Why not have fun? They doubted that Christ would come back again, and so they scoffed. And Peter gives us the reason that they give for their scoffing, for their disbelief that Jesus will return let me read uh, the, the, the whole verse four. Peter says, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fall asleep, uh, fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So these scoffers are looking around at all creation uh, and saying, look, everything looks the same as it always has, right? Everything in the past, everything in the present, everything is the same. Uh, and so there's no reason to believe that some cataclysmic event is about to happen where Jesus is gonna come back and, and flip everything upside down. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, referring to probably the earliest fathers of the, of the Jewish faith, uh, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, uh, ever since these fathers fell asleep, uh, things have continued to progress with order and regularity. So what makes us think that something's going to happen to throw this continuity off? Essentially what they're saying is, you know what, from our perspective, God's wrong. Or really, from my perspective, what you say about your God is wrong. Judgment's not a real thing. Uh, and this objection is alive and well today in many forms. All right, I, you know, if you say God is a God of love, then how could he judge? Right? You keep saying that this world is broken, Christians. If you say that God created all things, then why did he create a broken world if he's so good? If you say that God is a God of justice, then why are so many bad things happening? If God cares so deeply for the poor and the powerless, then why is he sitting and doing nothing and watching them die and starve and suffer? Here's the thing, though. Uh, if these scoffers are right about God not coming back to judge, then the rest of their logic is, is correct. Right? If God is not going to come back to judge, then what reason do we have to hope in a better day that is to come? None. What reason do we have to repent, to turn from our old ways towards God if judgment isn't coming? None. What reason do we have to restrain our sinful desires, fighting temptation in the pursuit of holiness and godliness? None, if God's judgment isn't coming. As the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Everything that we're doing is pointless. My preaching here is pointless. Your gathering here is pointless. In other words, what I think Peter's getting at is that it's not their logic, is that their logic is wrong. They're right 
that if there's no future hope of judgment, then what we're doing here is pointless. The problem is not with their logic, it's with their premises. To talk for just a moment about that, I, I majored in, uh, in, one of my majors in college was philosophy. Um, and the first philosophy class I took was my favorite philosophy class that I took. Uh, it's the, the reason I wanted to be a philosophy major. It was a class called Contemporary Moral Issues. Um, and in the class, uh, it was a great professor, uh, and he presented us with, with these ethical questions that we had to answer and make arguments about. Um, and this class happened to also be one of the most humbling classes I took in college because we would make what we thought were these solid arguments uh, only to find out that it was easy to poke holes in just about everything that we were saying. And he didn't do it. He wasn't like that jerk philosophy professor who just proved you wrong every time. But he really gently pointed out that many of our ethical arguments are basically like houses of cards that you just push one little card and the whole thing comes tumbling down because we make a lot of assumptions in our thought processes. Uh, give a couple of examples, but I say that to say this. As people, uh, we're always employing logic. Right? We're always using our minds to process what, things that are happening to us, to draw conclusions about the world around us. And often, if we're not careful, our logical arguments can become a facade uh, for, for things that are absolutely false, resting on false premises. The, the argument looks good, but what we're basing the argument on is actually untrue. And that's what Peter is saying here. I'm convinced that Peter and Paul would look and say, look, the scoffer's logic is sound. It's just the data that they're using is, is not sound. And so they're in dangerous waters because rather than being driven by the pursuit of truth and the pursuit of God, verse 3 says they are being driven by their sinful desire. And as a result, they're missing some key premises. You may have heard, uh, you may have heard about, I'm sure you've heard of confirmation bias. Um, it's the idea that when you really want something to be true, you will all of a sudden, surprise, find all kinds of sources that prove you to be right. Um, if you think about politics, it's very easy to explain. Um, if you want to prove that Donald Trump's presidency is going really well, it's the best president ever, then you can find 10 articles to show that he is just knocking it out of the park. If you want to prove that Donald Trump is taking the nation down the drain, then you can find 10 articles that are outlining just exactly how terrible he is in every way. Right? We will find the arguments and overlook others when we want something to be true. Driven by their own sinful desires, these scoffers don't want there to be a coming judgment. And so they find the sources that they need to confirm this bias that they have. And we do this all the time. Do you want it to be okay to eat fast food once a week? You'll probably find a study that says, yeah, no difference. Makes no difference to your health. Do you want it to be okay to have sex with your girlfriend or your boyfriend before you get married? You'll probably find a social psychologist who says, hey, it's actually more healthy for you to do this rather than abstain, rather than waiting for marriage. Do you want, to be, do you want it to be okay to save a huge amount of money? Then sure, you can find all kinds of financial gurus who, are, who will tell you, you got to take care of yourself before you take care of other people. Right? Driven by their sinful desires, these scoffers are missing key realities about the universe. And Peter points out exactly where they're going wrong. Look at what the scoffers are saying. They're saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were. So the idea that the universe was created by a God who would come back and just flip things upside down is just silly. Things have continued just as they were in the early days. And Peter's response comes in verse five. He says, for they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment 
and the destruction of the ungodly. So Peter's response to these scoffers is to essentially to challenge their history. Their argument rests on the continuity of creation that they've seen in the natural world. They're using, you know, I haven't seen anything change in my life, so, uh, you know, this argument, uh, or this, this, this idea that God is involved with his creation, he's going to come change things around, uh, this doesn't make sense. Peter points to two significant discontinuities that really throw a wrench uh, in the spoke of their wheels. First, Peter says, essentially, you're overlooking God's act of creation itself, which is the biggest discontinuity in the history of the creation. Right? Do you not know that at some point there was nothing and that nothing turned into something? And this is key even today. A lot of people pit science and the Bible against one another, uh, saying that since we've learned so much about the universe and its origins that go way back in time uh, with everything explainable by natural phenomena, then there's no need for us to believe in a God who is particularly caring about his creation. Right? If anything, though, uh, what we've seen, particularly in recent years, is that science has done nothing but necessitate an act of creation, right? a start point for all things where everything blew up. Uh, a lot of Big Bang theorists uh, have quieted their arguments noticeably in the past few years because, I think, in part, because they realize that it really does kind of necessitate there being a powerful moment of the creation of all things. Without God, I don't know how that makes sense, and it's really inexplicable. So Peter looks at these scoffers and says, you're deliberately overlooking the greatest discontinuity in the history of the universe, that in the beginning God interrupted the continuity of his, of his eternal pleasure, of his eternal love and perfection. He interrupted that continuity out of his good pleasure so that he could create all things. The second discontinuity that Peter points out is the flood. You might have heard of the story of Noah and the flood from Genesis uh, 6 through 9. Peter says, by means of water and the word of God, verse 6, that the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So after the creation of all things, after the creation of humanity, there was one cataclysmic event in the history of the universe that was a huge discontinuity in the way that the world has gone. You may be familiar with the story. God becomes so grieved at one point back in Genesis 6 that it says that he was grieved that he even created it all. And so he resolved to make an end of all flesh on the earth. Uh, and then, but then he chooses one man, Noah, and his family to preserve. And he tells them to build an ark. Preserve yourselves so that this plan of redemption can continue. And in the flood, uh, the whole world was covered with a deluge of water, wiping out, every, uh, wiping out the old world, as Peter said, so that Noah and his family could start anew with the animals that they brought with them. And to be honest, the story of Noah is, is actually is probably the hardest story in the Bible for me to read. Uh, every human being and every animal that didn't make it onto the ark fell under the wrath of God's judgment, and they perished. There were some sea creatures that survived because their habitat was underwater. There was at least one tree that survived because we know that the dove brought Noah back a leaf uh, to signify that the waters were receding. But beyond that, uh, the world that then existed perished, as Peter said. And in verse 7, the world that now exists is a different world than it was before, a different age that is also being stored up for judgment, but this time, judgment with fire. And there's an important detail in the story of Noah uh, that I think Peter has in mind as he's bringing this up to, 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 to counteract the teaching of the scoffers. And the fact that God makes a covenant with Noah when they leave the ark, and in the covenant, God says two things that are significant here. Genesis 8:22, God says to Noah, while the earth remains after this point, so the waters have receded, 
the flood, they're, they're, they're getting, they've gotten off of the ark and they're starting to, to repopulate the earth. God says to Noah, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. That's referred to by some theologians as the continuity principle. Things will continue to move as such until the end of this world. Genesis 9.15, God says to Noah, I will remember my covenant that's between me and you and every living creature, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy the earth. So God promises regularity, and he promises never to set a flood of water over the earth again. And the wording is key. While the earth remains, God says, I will maintain the continuity of creation Never again shall the waters be brought up as they were in that day. And ever since the flood, God has shown himself to be nothing but faithful to that covenant. It's as if Peter points back to the flood, after which God promises to keep this natural world moving along with continuity to show these scoffers, listen, you're using continuity as an argument against God being involved in his creation. If anything, continuity is a testament to the fact that God is actively involved in keeping his promises to the world. And even as God promises a future day of judgment, it won't be a flood of waters. It will be a fire from heaven poured out to purify and purge the earth of all wickedness and sin. And the question we come to as I move into point three, God's purposeful timing. The question we come to then is this. Why is God waiting? Why is God waiting? If judgment is a good thing for those who love God, then if, if it's a good thing that will enable God to usher in what he talks about in verse 13, right? That new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells, right? Then, then why has he been waiting so long to bring this to pass? I think this text is a huge gift for us, especially 2,000 years later, because these scoffers were just within a century that Peter's writing about. We are 2,000 years later, and so we, we might be left with the question, why? Why? Is God still waiting? If God is a God of love and he has the power to make this recreated, beautiful creation happen, then why has he not done it yet? The scoffers will ask questions, saying, where is he coming? He's not coming back. And we might be left thinking, man, they're right. Shouldn't he be back already? But no, uh, no. This is where the story that the Bible tells uh, starts really to make sense. See, with a God who loves his people and wants to live with them and enjoy a relationship with them for all eternity, but who also wants to purge all evil from the face of the earth, the only solution is to provide a way of rescue for his people so that when this day comes, we do not melt away with all of the troubles of the world, so many of the troubles of which we ourselves have caused. See, the reason, according to this passage, that God continues to wait is not that God is being slow about bringing this beautiful land to a reality. But verse nine, that God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, if we look at God and accuse him of being slow, then we are missing ourselves this one fact that Peter pleads with us not to overlook. Verse eight, Peter says, but do not overlook this one fact. So he turns from the scoffers and he looks to his church. He says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, loved ones, my children. Do not overlook this fact that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. There's a lot that could be said about this. But what Peter is saying is that our time is not God's time. Right? We see time from within creation, from within time, because we were created for time and time was created for us. Right? We were created to grow 
to cultivate, to change, and change, cultivation, creation require time to pass. God, on the other hand, never changes. He never grows. He never needs to cultivate anything within himself because he is totally perfect, totally unchanging, and none of that would be necessary for him. God created time, and he sees all of time from without, molding and shaping the things that happen within time for his grand purposes. So with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years are as one day. What Peter is saying is that God sees time completely differently from us. So we can't possibly presume to make a determination about the apparent slowness or quickness of God's unfolding plan because we do not see time as he sees it. But here we're told that it, it's just the opposite of God being slow. Rather than slowness being a testament to dallying, laziness, or inability within God, what appears slow to us is in fact the gracious patience of God for his people. Verse nine, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And in this, we see the heart of God. Right? At the beginning, right when Adam and Eve sinned, God could have wiped them away and started over, but he didn't. Right? In the story of the flood with Noah and the ark, God could have actually wiped away all flesh like he resolved to do, but he decided not to. He decided to preserve a family so that his plan of redemption could keep moving forward. The reason God is waiting to bring about this day of judgment is because all evil and all evildoers will be wiped away when he brings this day about. Nothing bad will remain, only what is good. In other words, no one whose sin has been left undealt with will be able to remain and see the new world that God will bring into being. Instead, they will receive eternal punishment. And that is what God is trying to avoid and what Peter is imploring with his church to understand. The problem is that the sickness of sin is a sickness that infects every human being, right? And not one human being, not one mere human being has the strength within his or herself to to recover from this sickness. But this great physician has made himself available to us. Jesus Christ, God himself, was born as a human, took on human flesh. He was fully human, fully God, and he was born so that he could live the life that none of us could live, die the death that each of us deserve, and in his flesh secure our salvation for all eternity. In other words, there is a judgment day that is coming, but there is also a judgment day that has come and gone because when Jesus died on the cross, he endured the full cup of God's wrath for you and for me. Not half the cup, not most of the cup, the entire cup of God's wrath was poured out completely on Jesus for the sake of the sins of the world. As it says in 1 John 2, 2, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And the way through God's wrath, but the only way to receive salvation in this coming day of judgment is to receive the gift offered to us in Christ. It's the most beautiful gift that God makes available to us. Not any, there's no number of good works that we can do to secure our salvation because the best that we have to offer, as the verse says, the best we have to offer are but filthy rags in God's eyes. The only thing that we need to bring to God is our broken spirits and contrite hearts asking him, repenting from our old ways and asking him for forgiveness. You see, the day of the Lord is coming as sure as the flood came in the days of Noah. God instructed Noah to build an ark and to get his family in it 
And then God waited after he gave instructions until the ark was fully built, until after Noah was able to get all the animals and, the, and his family onto the ark, and then God sent judgment. Today, we look back on a day when God gave us instructions. He gave us instructions for how to build an ark. He did that by coming himself and telling us how we can be preserved from the flood, from the flood of his wrath that is to come. Simply believe. Believe on the one whom he has sent. Repent and believe in the gospel. God has told us that, and now he's waiting. Just like he waited for Noah and his family to build the ark, he is waiting today, waiting for the ark to be built and finished. And when the flood comes, those who are in Christ have nothing to fear from the coming fire of God's wrath. Noah's family didn't have to struggle with the water. All they had to do was to board the ark, close, watch as God closed the door in the ark, and sit as the boat was tossed to and fro, trusting God. We have nothing. The same is true with us. The fire of God's wrath will be a destructive, consuming fire that will erase wickedness from the face of the earth. That judgment has been poured out for those who place their faith in Christ entirely on Jesus. So that when he comes, and when that day of judgment comes, we will be resurrected and given new bodies and entered into this new creation with perfect, blemishless, spotless righteousness given to us as a free gift by Christ himself. Can you picture that day? Can you picture what that day is going to be like. All right, it will be a whole new creation. We're gonna enjoy all eternity with God and with one another. It will be a world that is completely new, but probably strangely familiar because many of the good things in this world will be present there too. And time, think about this. Time, Peter is very focused on time in this chapter. Time itself will be redeemed. In the curse in the Garden of Eden, God said to Adam, in pain you shall eat from the ground all the days of your life, and you will eventually die, right? To dust you will return. When sin entered the world, all of creation broke. Time was created for our good pleasure, and as the Apostle, said, as the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 5.16, make the most of your time now because your days are now evil. When Adam and Eve fell, time became turned from being our friend to being our enemy. I was putting my daughter to bed last night, um, and it was, that's probably my favorite time of day with my daughter. Uh, it's a beautiful time. She snuggles. It's the only time she snuggles. You've probably met Tallulah. She runs around. Uh, doesn't like to be picked up. Very independent. But she loves, I love that moment where she's snuggling with me and I'm tucking her in. But last night, I got a little tear in my eye because I remembered uh, that these days are not going to be forever. Every other parent has told me, don't, wait, don't miss these opportunities. Right? Because what I know is that there's coming a day when she's going to experience trials and tribulations. So I get sad for her sake. And as she grows older and grows more independent, I'm going to see less and less of her, and I'm going to want these moments back so badly. You see, even the best times we have now will end and fade off into memory because time is not our friend. Time passing is exhausting, and ultimately it's deadly. You know, because of that, it's almost hard. I don't know if you ever think about this, it's almost hard for me to picture eternity as a good thing, right? I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but I, I, sometimes when I think of eternity, I just get tired and want to take a nap, right? Because time is exhausting. But listen, that's because I'm looking through my eyes. I'm looking through the looking glass at the one who's looking in, who created me and that looking glass itself. 
Listen, I have no idea what God has in store for the new heavens and new earth. I can imagine things. We can imagine things. We can look at the prophets and the apostles, try to describe what they're seeing in their visions. But I do know this. We will all be amazed. Those of us who are in Christ, we will all be amazed when we get there. We have no idea what it's going to be like to not feel the weight of sin. We have no idea what it's going to be like to not feel the pressure of time. We have no idea what it's going to be like to, to enjoy moments like, and, and enjoy those moments for 10,000 years instead of 10 minutes, like I got to spend with my daughter last night. What a beautiful day that will be. Time will no longer be the inevitable end of us all, but will be a beautiful opportunity for us to grow and cherish every moment and grow in our love and appreciation with God, with one another, for all eternity. What a beautiful hope we have in Christ. Don't miss this opportunity to receive the gift of God's gracious rescue through the flood of his coming wrath. You know, it's hard sometimes to talk about judgment uh, particularly in today's culture, in which it's kind of, you know, you do you and I do me. But because of Christ, we Christians get to look forward to this coming flood of God's wrath with hope that it will be a fearful but wonderful day. God, God's love will be in action as he judges all things because he is purifying and preparing the new heavens and new earth along with us to enjoy him for all eternity. In verse 14, Peter says, Therefore, beloved, brothers and sisters, since you're waiting for these times to arrive, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Think about 2 Peter 1, uh, that God has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, and therefore, all has been given to us. You do not need to work for your salvation, but... Peter says, you have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness to to practice what life in the new heavens and new earth are gonna be like in righteousness, godliness. And so avail yourself of that opportunity. Make every effort, as it said in 2 Peter 1, to supplement your faith with virtue, knowledge, steadfastness, all these good things. Because Peter said, those things will be encouraging for you. If these qualities are yours and they're increasing, as you grow in the image of Christ, you can be sure that God will prevent these from making you unfruitful, or prevent you from being unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And count the patience of our Lord not as useless delay, but as purposeful delay, because he wants to extend salvation and forgiveness for all. If you're in this room right now, you are not too far gone for God. If anyone, you know, if you are alive right now, then you can rest assured that God's work in your life is not done. You have growth yet to experience here and now, growth that will ultimately point you toward that beautiful day when we will spend all eternity with Christ. But take great hope that God has made this available to us through offering us Christ. There is no salvation without Jesus Christ, but there is complete salvation with Jesus Christ. As I close, that song, um, that song, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, is one of my dad's favorite songs. Uh, my dad isn't a Christian, uh, but every time he hears that song, particularly Eva Cassidy's version, uh, if you've heard that one, uh, if not, look it up. It's just amazing. Every time my dad hears the song Somewhere Over the Rainbow, uh, he tears up when he hears talk about a, a land where troubles melt away, uh, where dreams that you dream really do come true. And I want so badly for my dad to know why he thinks that's such a beautiful song, why he loves to hope that way. And I want you to know that I hope the same for you. If you do not know Jesus, if you do not know why you think a song like that is beautiful, why you yearn, why you're still trying to make it work in this body of flesh, why you're still hoping for that day that you'll get that release, 
where you will be freed to live in that place over the rainbow. If you are wondering why you don't have that and why you think that is such a beautiful hope, then I hope that you come to know why it is. Listen, scoffers will come and say, God's not coming back. But the truth is that God's judgment will come. And that judgment is a beautiful and wonderful day and can be for you. If you place your faith in Christ, turn to him and believe so that when the judgment day comes, we can all sing together the words of that hymn, Rock of Ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee as we watch as the wrath of God passes over us because we're in Christ.